and uh, we will be in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 13 is where we find ourselves today. If you could snag the lights back there, that would help some people see. Um, Luke chapter 13, and we're going to be plowing through verses 18 through 35. So if some of you who are guests with us, just kind of understand kind of how things roll here. It's We just take books of the Bible and go through them. We believe the Bible is God's word, and so we want him to speak. And so we just seek to kind of understand his word. So we'll start in verse 18 because we have been, we started at Luke 1 and we're all the way through uh, Luke 13, verse 17, and today we start at verse 18. And so we'll go 18 through 35. I'm going to read verses 18 through 21 for us, but we will cover the entire passage uh, today. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you. Uh, ask a neighbor for it. It might help you be able to follow along uh, as we... Uh, really will pull a lot from uh, what, uh, just directly from the text here. So, um, Luke chapter 13, and I'll read verses 18 through 21 and pray, and then we'll dive in uh, this together. So the Word of God says this. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Is it like leaven, or it is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened? Let's pray. Father, these images, along with some things in your word, they're not readily apparent what you are seeking to teach us, and we need your help. And so, Father, I come needy as the next person, and just asking that, Father, you would melt any hard hearts, you would open up ears to hear, you would shape me and everyone in here to look more like you. Because we genuinely believe the greater we look like you, the more we see you, the fuller our joy and hope will be. And so, Father, for the sake of the joy of your people and the glory of your name, transform us in this moment. And may you move us beyond just learning facts to loving a Savior. And so, please, ignite affections in our heart for Jesus. Do this, I pray. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. The main aim today is to highlight the fact that God is always at work. He is always at work. Now, I'm a parent of four kids, and I took for granted my parents and all that they did for me. Kind of here's how it's unfolded. When I jumped into college, I realized that life was a little more than about certain things uh, being given to me, that I had a lot of ownership. I had to uh, make a lot more decisions than I realized I needed to make and had to provide for myself a lot more than I realized. And so that moment was a moment where I was able to look back and say, man, I think I'm thankful for what my parents did for me. Well, fast forward a little bit, then I get married. Okay, I've been married almost 20 years. That's a gift of grace Um, and as I'm married, I look back and I realize, man, this marriage thing is wonderful, but it's got some drama. It's hard. So like 
they were like taking care of me and they were doing this marriage thing all at once. And it was kind of behind the scenes because, you know, I'm kind of oblivious to things that were going on. I was too worried about, does this girl like me? And really grieving over the fact that most didn't like me. And, and then trying to figure out, you know, like what my major is and, you know, just figuring out, okay, how can I make a little more money? And that little more money was not really to pay for major things, but it was just to kind of, you know, get a Taco Bell run late at night because I was up studying too late or something. So, you know, it was just, that's just how it worked. Well, then fast forward a little bit more to when I had kids. And you began to realize how much behind-the-scenes sacrifice happened that I was just, you know, unaware of. Um, the fact that, you know, the staying up late, the working multiple jobs in order to make ends meet, and dealing with the difficulty of relationship. How in the world do I raise these kids? And asking around and just figuring out how you can find any type of physical rest in the midst of dealing with multiple kids. And, and you know, I just don't, I just didn't grasp it. But the more I had my own children, the more I realized my parents were kind of always at work behind the scenes and I was oblivious. And this right here is what Jesus is wanting to press in on us. He is always at work and we are oblivious. But he's wanting us to have eyes open that we might begin to see more of how he is at work in the small things, in the everyday, from day to day, for our good and for his great fame. He's at work. He's always at work. And my prayer has been, oh God, help us to see how you are at work for our good. Now, there are three things that I think this passage highlights. And the passage kind of puts some things together in some weird ways. So I'm actually going to... start in the middle, work my way to the end, and then pop back up to the beginning, to the passage we just read. So the three main things that I think are being taught by Jesus in these words before us are these. Number one, starting in verse 22 through 30, I think Jesus is highlighting that he is asking and calling for the reader, the listener, to love him and follow him because he is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Amen? He is worth it. Number two, he also wants us to see how loving he is and to allow that to draw us in, that we might come to him because he is willing. The images of a God who is saying, I love you, come to me, just as you are. And then the last one is actually from the verses that I read to us at the beginning, verses 18 through 21. And he is calling us to watch, that is, look for how he's at work, and to wait when we struggle to see him at work because he is always at work. The emphasis of the passage is God is worth it, he is willing, and he is at work. The emphasis is on him. Now, how do we respond to his greatness? Let's dive in. Number one. He's calling us to love him and follow him because he is worth it. Now, verse 22, look at it with me. It says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. This is kind of an epic shift in the story because now his face is set towards Jerusalem, which we know will lead towards his eventual death. And as he's walking towards Jerusalem, he gets a question. 
from those who are walking alongside him. And the question, verse 23, is this. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know exactly what precipitated this question, exactly why, but we do know the question is pretty straightforward. Jesus, you're able to rescue and to change people, to save people from their sins and to wash them clean. Will that number be many or few? And Jesus chose not to use this as a a tweet or as a Twitter moment, but to say, I'm not just going to say yes or no, I'm going to explain it in length. This is something that I think our culture misses sometimes. Not all things can be communicated in 120 characters, okay? Especially important things. Even Twitter is wanting to go to 240 in case you hadn't heard. They're they're entertaining it. So, right here, verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus answered to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, all of a sudden, we understand one thing. To get in, there's a narrow door. That means that the image is there's not this mass entering, but there's a narrowness to it. And he is saying to all who hear him at that moment, to us who read, strive. Strive. And you know what striving is like. You know what striving is like. Some of you, you need extra income, so you strive for overtime so that you can get time and a half. Some of you, you know what it's like to be a student and you are striving to get the project done because you want to get the grade because you want to graduate. Others of you are striving to impress someone because you want their attention or their affection. Some of you parents know what it is to strive because you want your child to be a great athlete or musician or artist. And so you're researching how in the world can we get them access to all of these things so that they might be the best or greatest or have the opportunities I didn't have or however it rolls. Strive. Some of you know what it is to strive because you strive for relaxation and comfort. Why do you strive for those things? Because you believe those things are worth it. You believe those things are worth carving out your time for for, and going after with some energy. And here Jesus is saying, I'm worth it. Getting inside and coming after me is worth it. And it will take some labor, some energy, some striving. So that's lesson number one. It's something that takes some going after, some seeking. But now he says this. Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 24. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Well, why? Okay, verse 25, he tells us. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, hey, we ate and we drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all workers of evil. And in that place, that place outside the door, not with him. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. What is he saying? 
It is sobering. It is serious. He's saying there will come a time. The image of the master shutting the door is not one who is like got a bunch of people there and he just slams it shut. The image is the door is open. Run into it. But for an undisclosed amount of time, they're not running into it. And now the time has come that the door must be closed. And it's just and right that the door is closed. The verdict has been rendered. The time has come. So the door is closed. And now all of a sudden, they're like, oh wait, I need to get in. Why weren't they going before? What was in their way? The image is that the people of Israel were leaning on their ethnicity or leaning on their pedigree or leaning on their religiosity, but not leaning on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He's standing right there before them, the one that was taught in the scriptures, the one that was going to save them from their sins, the one they were longing for. He was there in the flesh. And the image is they're not embracing him, loving him, trusting him. Instead, they're leaning on what they can do upon their laws, upon their religion as the means for getting in. Jesus says the day will come, the door will close. You will stand there thinking that it was enough for you to be good and no amount of goodness is going to get you in the door because it's so much different than that. You can have a list a mile long of how good you were compared to your neighbor, and we can talk about what good means. But you can have a list a mile long of how often you went to church and how much you gave. And you can have a list a mile long on this side of something else that you might say makes me worth getting in. But the Bible says at the end of the day, the only way you get in is to be weak and humble and to admit you're a sinner and he's the only Savior. It is the foundation of entry into the kingdom of God, it is helplessness, it is emptiness, and it is saying you are worth it and after you I go. Jesus is saying, don't wait till that moment when the door is closed. Don't wait till that moment when the the verdict has to be rendered. When the judge will sit on the throne and says, this is right and just, you have rejected me. You see what they're leaning on. They're saying, hey, I was near you. I heard your teachings. And Jesus is like, but you're not coming after me. And so the invitation is love him and follow him because he is worth it. And those who do not will be outside of that narrow gate. There will be few that choose to strive and to go after Jesus. And it says in verse 29, And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table at the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. What we'll see here in the next little passage is that he's addressing the fact that these Jewish people who should have known him, these religious leaders who should have embraced him, have rejected him. And so those who should be first are now going to be last. And he opens up the door from the north, south, east, and west, all the Gentiles to come in. And the gospel is for them because God's own people have rejected him. He says, love him, follow him. He is worth it. The first, those who have received the good news of God and have rejected it, they will be last. And those who have never heard and yet now are hearing for the first time, those Gentiles being brought in, they will be first. But look at the next verse. Verse 31 takes us to the second point, which is see his love and come to him because he is willing. 
This is where I begin to say he is highlighting the rejection primarily of the Jewish people, but it applies to all of us who are tempted to reject him or to act as if our acceptance is built upon what we do. Look at verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, Jesus, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' words are, and he said to them, Go and tell that fox. And I just want to stop there. <laughs> I like that moment right there. That's good. I, when I read it first, I was like, like, did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Like, like what was kind of under his skin right there? And what's he doing? He knows who's asking the question. The very people who are going to be his executioners in the weeks to come are the very people who are acting like they care about his life. They're saying, hey, Herod might kill you. And he knows. No, you're going to kill me. He says, well, tell Herod that fox. Fox is one who is known for being sly and cunning, secretive. He says, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will finish my course. It doesn't matter if Herod is coming after me. He's not going to stop what I am doing. He has tried to get me before. He knows he tried to get me as a baby and it didn't work. I'm curing people. I'm healing people. I'm casting out demons. And on the third day, matter of fact, I'm going to die a sinner's death even though I'm not a sinner. And I'll be raised on the third day to new life. And you will not be able to stop it, Herod, no matter how foxy or cunning you are. You're not going to be able to do it. I will finish my course. And this begins to help us open the door just a little bit to see when Jesus says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. He keeps his word. He does what he says he's going to do. He says, tell that fox, try all you want to. I will finish my course and he will not cut it short. Nevertheless, he says, verse 33, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. When I read that, I didn't get it. This is sarcasm. Jesus is being sarcastic. You know what he's saying? He's talking to these religious leaders who seem to be caring about his life, the ones who will kill him soon, and he's saying this. He's saying, Okay, you go tell Herod that basically he's not going to stop me, but now I'm looking at you. Why do you think I'm headed to Jerusalem? I'm headed to Jerusalem because historically that's where all the prophets have been killed. That's where all the men who have been trumpeting the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That's where all the names of the people who bore the word of God were slaughtered. And so I'm headed there to die. Because that's what Jerusalem is. It's supposed to be the place where you worship me and instead it's turned into the place of rejection and rebellion and obstinance. A man named John Calvin says this, it was the height of madness. The place that was to be chosen as the sanctuary of divine worship and the house of God's written law and of heavenly wisdom became polluted not by one or another murderer but by a regular butchery of the prophets it undoubtedly showed how obstinate is the rebellion of the world in rejecting God's word 
Jesus wanted to highlight, look how rebellious you are. You've had everything right before you, the word before you, the prophets before you. And instead of embracing it and humbly following him, you just reject them, make fun of them, and eventually kill them. So he says, of course I'm going to Jerusalem because that's where all prophets die. And he knows that he's more than a prophet. He's God himself, which he has claimed. But look and has stated, but look at verse 34. Remarkable to me. But when he looks at the people of Jerusalem, his end tone is not frustration and sarcasm, but sadness. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. I just hear it. There could be some in this room that on that last day, he said, I gave you every opportunity. You sat in that church on that October 1st, and the word was open to you, and you heard it. And I said I loved you. And my arms were open wide for you. And you would not humble yourself and follow me. Instead, you believed and believed the lie and went after everything else as if everything else was worth it. And I showed you over and over, I am worth it. And I am valuable. And I care for you. And you kept stiff-arming me and stiff-arming me. I would have gathered you in. That's his tone. I love you. As a mom gathers and draws near. As a hen would draw under the wings for protection. He's saying, don't run from that protection. I care for you. But he acknowledges. They would not. Year after year. Generation after generation. Oh, that some in here would break the generational cycle of playing the charade of following Jesus. The charade of church. The charade of being good and good is enough. And really fall on their face and say, I need a Savior because I'm a mess and a wreck. I need to be changed. Oh, that God would raise up a new people. Leaning not on their own efforts, but on the goodness of a Savior. And he says in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say. See me as equivalent to walking through the narrow door. You will not receive salvation. You will not see me until you say these words. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a statement that says, all that is needed is to come. As you are in your mess to come to the living God and he receives you. He is willing. What compassion. And so he says, do you see my love? Come to me because I'm willing. The first one is love him and follow him because he's worth it. Second one is see his love and come to him because he's willing. But the third is now watch and wait. Because he is at work. Let's zip back up to verse 18. 
And honestly, I don't even know what zip back up means, but I think you get it. It's a weird turn of phrase, but I said it, so we're rolling. Verse 18. We come to verse 18 to see this final point of watch and wait because he is at work. And it says, verse 18, he said, therefore. Now, whenever you read, therefore, you ask, what's it there for? It always points you backwards, okay? So it means you need to know what has come before it in order to understand what he is trying to teach us. So he said, therefore, what's the passage right before it? The passage right before it is a woman who has been plagued with a disabling spirit for 18 years and could not fully straighten herself up. And Jesus goes and he lays his hands upon this woman and heals her. And these Pharisees, the very Pharisees who we just read about, who acted as if they're afraid for his life, they come and they're like, I can't believe you did that. It's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to be a day of rest. And then he says, now, wait just a second. Which one of you, if you've got an animal, would not untie it so that it could go and get water? You see the moment. It's like mouth shut. It's like, oh. Every one of you would. And every one of you do. But yet, Jesus says, when I untie this woman and set her free from her bondage, you cry foul? Is woman really less important than this ox? Jesus is saying, I don't think so. And the summary is in verse 17, and he said these things, and all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. What was done by him is what he specializes in. Jesus specializes in setting people free. The good news of the kingdom coming is that Jesus places his kingdom in the hearts of sinful people and he takes hard hearts and he makes them soft and he begins to do a work deep within them that will not stop until they see him at the end. Jesus specializes in making broken things whole and taking old things and making them new and taking messes and making them clean and beautiful. This is what he does. He sets free. And now he says, to you who have been set free, what's the kingdom of God like? You see that in verse 18? What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Well, before we go into the two images we read about, mustard seed into a tree and a little bit of leaven into some bread, There's some things that he compares the kingdom to throughout his teachings. One, we've actually already heard about it later on in the passage today. It's that the kingdom is the place where dividing good and bad and evil and faithful happens. So here's the story he tells in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, he says, So someone goes out and they sow wheat. And while they're sowing the wheat, later that night, an enemy comes and sows weeds. Now they're both growing up. And they ask, what should we do? Should we go and try to pull the weeds? And he says, no, don't pull the weeds because you'll pull up the wheat with it. Instead, he says, let the wheat grow. 
and the weeds will grow with it. You get the image. Evil and the weeds following God is the wheat. They're going to grow simultaneously. But the kingdom of heaven is like on the last day when harvest time comes, pull the weeds and set them aside and they will be burnt in a fire and take the wheat and they will be gathered for a plentiful harvest. What's the storyline? The kingdom of heaven is a time and a place where good will be separated from bad, where faithful will be separated from evil. It goes back to exactly what we just heard. Come to him before the door is shut on that last day, which we don't know when he will return, but he is coming back. Trust in him. The second image that he brings up about the kingdom is he says this, and this is actually where we get the name of our church, Treasuring Christ Church. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Who when the man knows that that treasure is out there, he sells all that he has to buy the field so he can get the treasure. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. What's that mean? It means that it's supremely valuable and desirable. Seeing God at work and being with Him is most valuable and most desirable. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He even goes on and tells another story. He says, it's like a man who is going after a pearl and he finds the pearl, sell all that he has in order that he can get the pearl of great price. He's communicating the kingdom of heaven is not something that's a drag. It's something that's desirable and wonderful. You want to see God at work. You want to be with Him. So now, dive into the images He gives us now. Because this is kind of the third image of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven has small beginnings and great endings. You see this? Verse 19. Kingdom of heaven, what shall I compare it to? It's like a grain of mustard seed. One of the smallest seeds that you could have. That a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. Matthew says it became the greatest of all garden plants is the mustard tree. And it got so big that the birds of the air made nests in its branches. What's he trying to get across? Jesus delights in small beginnings. And he creates great endings. Great endings out of small beginnings. I was reading an article this week. And there's a section in WRL News that is called Strange News. I regularly get a lot of joy out of the Strange News section. So there was one. It's not that strange, but it is a little, a little weird. So this couple is going to get married. And this man named Cody is going to marry Michaela. And Cody decides that he wants to do it at the zoo. Okay? So, he takes Michaela to the zoo. And she believes she's getting a behind-the-scenes tour of the zoo. As they go through, they make it to the giraffe section. As they're at the giraffe section... They then, she is uh, convinced that now she gets to witness 
the training exercises for Millie the giraffe. This is part of the behind-the-scenes tour, a training exercise for the giraffe. So Millie gets to show her how she can point her nose at a tennis ball, and this is just a lot of fascinating things. And so now Michaela gets the opportunity to feed the giraffe, and so they give this tree branch to Michaela, and she sticks it through the fence, and the giraffe leans its head over like this right here, and all of a sudden, around the giraffe's neck is hanging the engagement ring. And so the guy gets down on one knee and proposes to her. I don't know if the giraffe held the pose or not, but gets down on one knee and proposes, and they're getting married. I was like, okay, that's pretty strange, but pretty cool, right? Okay, so... In this moment, when the giraffe leans the head down, and that little ring is there, and the guy gets down on his knee and says, will you marry me? What would be the case if she turns around and just starts staring at the giraffe? It's just like, that giraffe, he's really cool. Have you seen, like, he's kind of tall, he's got some nice spot. What would be the problem with that? She would be distracted from what the point was, right? The point was this moment and this small, beautiful ring signified some greater thing than this giraffe. The giraffe would have been a distraction. And what Jesus is saying right here is that small things communicate beautifully big things. Small things can communicate beautifully big and momentous things. So this small little mustard seed now communicates something that God begins small things, but he creates great conclusions, great endings like this. One man in one sliver of time lived one life of love, proclaiming one message of freedom by faith alone. He died one death and he rose from the dead and literally history has never been the same. Out of that death, he created one new man, one people called one church, and that was the family of God. Now hear this. He preached to thousands upon thousands of people. And when he died and rose from the dead, there were only 120 left. That's about what we have in this room right now. The best preacher ever known to man, the Savior of saviors, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, preached to thousands, and the result was enough to fit in a small room. And through them, the church has never stopped growing and has only continued. I take great courage that God delights in small beginnings. small beginnings. Some of you are so frustrated because you compare your life to somebody else's and you feel like that your life is small. You don't have the education or you don't have the job or you don't have the money or you don't have the the husband or wife or you don't have the kids or you don't have whatever you have deemed as success and you just back off and you're just like, I am small, I am insignificant, I'm not valuable. And Jesus says, that's not true. Because I delight in small things. And actually, his economy says, I take weakness, and it's out of weakness that great things happen. You're not valuable because you can produce and perform. You are valuable because you are mine. 
You're valuable because you're made in my image, Jesus says. That's what makes you valuable. I take courage in that God delights in small beginnings. Small beginnings. And He wants us to then begin to notice that He does great things out of small beginnings. This week I was sitting in a Target. So, every now and then, when I'm by myself, I will get these thoughts and ideas because I'm thinking a lot as I go. And so I have a note in my phone where I'm just typing all kinds of stuff. And so I, I literally wasn't even planning on going to Target. I had to take something to my kids' school because they had left something at home. So I had to go do that. And then I was like, well, I needed to go and get something at Target real quickly. So I stopped in at Target and I was going to go and pick it up. And then all of a sudden I had this thought and I was like, okay, I'm going to stop. So I stopped at that like concession area where it has like the the popcorn and the drinks and I sat down in a target and I start typing down some things that had come to mind uh, that I'd been thinking on and as I'm sitting there all of a sudden a man from church comes up to me and I was like hey how you doing and so we just start talking now for me I began to back and back up and think okay I wasn't supposed to be anywhere near here at this time I wasn't supposed to be sitting here. If I would have been going around Target, I probably would have missed this guy altogether. Instead, I'm sitting here at this moment near the entrance as he's leaving. And we began to talk. And I told him afterwards what an encouragement to my faith he was as he began to share just how he was doing and what God was teaching him. And he too said that one or two things that I shared encouraged him. were keeping him going. And I just began to think, Two guys in a Target. Sounds like a bad movie, doesn't it? (laughs) Two guys in a Target just sitting there. We weren't planning on seeing each other. And God collides our paths. Why would he do that? Because what the world calls small and secondary and inconsequential or random or coincidence, God calls my purpose. And in that moment, how do I know that it wasn't the encouragement of that man that kept me from deep sadness or discouragement or distraction? And how do we know that it wasn't some word that I gave him that kept his faith going throughout that day, maybe week, months, or years? We don't know. But I do know this, that God does those kind of things all the time. There are no accidents in God's economy. He is at work and he is asking us to look for how he is at work. To listen and to learn. To set your eyes upon, God, what are you doing? Why in the world did that happen? What are you seeking to teach me? These things that we call small and secondary, he calls important. Because it's out of small things. That he desires to create great endings. Now he gives us another image. Out of small beginnings come great conclusions or endings. But look at verse 20. And again he said. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. That a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Three measures of flour is enough to feed about a hundred people. So we're talking about a lot of flour here. Like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. If the first image is to say 
Don't despise small things because they will grow up into something that are strong and great in God's timing, in God's ways. This image is to say, yes, small leaven works through a large amount of material here. But what does the image with leaven give us? It gives us that it works by growing and spreading and sometimes it does it imperceptibly. Like you don't always know if the leaven's through the whole thing until towards the end as the bread continues to fully rise. The same with the seed. You don't know that it's going to grow into the big tree because it's doing all kinds of things under the ground and then you see the little sprout and then you see it grow. The emphasis in both of these passages are not only that God does great things out of smallness, but also that he is at work sometimes imperceptibly to grow and to advance his kingdom. This is what he does. He takes times when we don't think anything is happening. And he is saying, here's the promise. I'm still at work. I'm always at work. I don't stop working. I don't know if you understand what fallow ground is. Fallow ground is ground that has been harvested and then it sits to rest, quote unquote, not planting anything in it for a season, and then you plant something on it later. If you know why they do that, it's because underneath the ground, beyond what we can see, there are microbes that are decomposing the ground and preparing it for the future crop to be planted. It's hard to see. You can't see it unless you are with a microscope, but something is happening. Same thing if you're just standing on the earth without a telescope, without these massively massive machines that help us to understand that our world is rotating on an axis and it's revolving around the sun. You can't discern that unless you're like crazy and start spinning in circles, which as I've gotten older, that makes me really dizzy. But you don't know that at all. It's something that happens imperceptibly. And here we have... That God is doing that in the human heart. When he brings his kingdom. Remember he's a master of setting people free. When he sets you free. And he sets his kingdom inside your heart. You need to know this. You are always being worked on. Even though you don't know it. You are always under construction. He is always at work. And some of you are like looking around and like. Why is some people ahead of me and others are getting further than me and have better bank accounts than me? Why do I have struggles and other people don't? Why do I have certain hardships and other people seem to have ease? And I want to give you an analogy. The analogy of parenting two different kids. If you've ever parented two different types of children or instructed two different children you have to understand that you approach them differently built upon their disposition. The more you know them, the better you are at being able to instruct what's going on. Let me give you an example. One, let's say there's a child that is under-motivated because he or she just craves comfort. And one that is so motivated, they never stop working because they're afraid of people. And they really want people's approval, so the way to get approval is to constantly be at work and constantly be going. You have one that doesn't get off their rear end and the other one that doesn't sit on their rear end. Okay? Now, how do I address them? How do I care for them? 
Well, the undermotivated one, I'm going to push them beyond what they want to do, right? I'm going to say, hey, you need to run another lap or you need to get off the couch and stop watching TV. The other one who is always at work, I might say, run one less lap or sit down and why don't you watch some TV? Because the problems are different. When I begin to address their heart, I might tell one that there's a Savior who promises joy when you go after Him wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. And the other one I will talk to that there is a God who tells you to enjoy life and His gifts and enjoy it to the full. And don't make somebody else's approval what drives you, but know that your God loves you. And then I'll look at them both and I'll say, but whether you're sitting on the couch or whether you are working, whether you are measured or whether you're ambitious, I love you and nothing will change that. You are valuable to me and I care for you, not because of your performance, but because you are my child and I love you. And now God comes and he says the same to you. Whether your life is really hard and really difficult, and you feel like you're underachieving, or whether it feels as if this is spiraling out of control and it's not happening over here, you need to hear the Father looking at you and saying, I love you. And no circumstance should uproot that fact that I cared for you and I gave my only son for you. And if I didn't spare him for you, then trust me that I'm at work in your life. But now he's got to address you differently. Because some of you, you need a gentle touch. And others of you need a firm hand. Others of you need pruning in finances. Others of you need pruning in relationships. Others of you, like me, are a train wreck in all of them and you need all kinds of help. But here's what I want you to hear. Just as that leaven is growing and sometimes imperceptibly. Yes, you can perceive at the end that the leaven was there. But as it's growing, you're not seeing all the different ways that it's growing. You're not seeing all the different pieces of that seed and how it's growing. You're just seeing kind of some of the end result. I'm telling you, God is at work, always at work, even though you cannot perceive it. And when your circumstances seem to say, I don't think he's at work. I don't think things are going rightly. He wants to say to you, I am always at work caring for you. Do not despair. I am at work. And there are verses that tell me this. Philippians 1.6. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? He who took his powerful setting free kingdom and placed it by his Holy Spirit in your heart, he says, what I began, I will what? I'll finish it. I'll bring it to completion. So that means no matter how you feel or what you think you can see, He is at work. And that we give Him praise for. That's what the kingdom of God is like. He's always spreading His kingdom. He's always at work. And so He says in Isaiah 64, 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts or works for those who wait for him. Our God is an acting God. And some of you are despairing because you don't see his work in you. 
And so you condemn yourself. Or you don't see his work in your spouse because they're slow learners. So you're tempted to give up. Sometimes you don't see that work in your kids and you're tempted to despair. And you're tempted to wave the flag that says the ship is sinking. It's going down. And he says, no, yes, there's a hole in the side of the ship, but it's really high and it's repairable. Would you please stop waving the flag that says everything is crumbling and know that I am at work for you. I'm at work. We get too wrapped up in our despair and we have a perception problem. We have a perception problem. We are really good at seeing the bad and we forget the good. We forget it. Friends, I can just tell you that there are stories already coming back from the entrance of the hurricane into all three of these regions, whether it's Hurricane Maria or Harvey or Irma. Stories coming back where because this horrible tragedy has come, People are loosening their grip on possessions as Savior and are asking questions about what is life really about. Because my security was in my home. And that home was flooded. I was in a non-flood zone. And my home was underwater. What is life about? And they're asking. And God's people are bringing the gospel and people are being changed. Some of you have experienced the unexpected. Unexpected trials. Some of you have experienced unexpected tragedy. And it has led to stronger faith. Now, at the beginning, your faith was weaker. The pain was unbearable. The head was cloudy. The heart was cold. But God in His kindness says, I am always working. And He comes and He resuscitates the heart. And He shakes you. And He says, I'm not going to let you go. And when you feel that pain, I'm right there with you. And I'm going to allow you to experience comfort that you've never experienced to a depth that you can experience it now. And what happens is over time, and some of you can testify to this, that even though the tragedy was horrible and large and great, and you would never choose it, God has grown you and given you stronger faith because He is always at work, even when you struggle to see it, especially in the dark times. You've seen loss of dreams, loss of physical mobility, loss of possessions, loss of job, loss of life. Relationships have turned Many of you to a hard heart, but God is saying, I'm at work and I take hard hearts and I can make them soft. Follow me. This message is a message for you today. His kingdom is always growing. He is always at work and never despise that your life might seem small in the world's eyes because even if it's after you're dead and gone, he promises that small beginnings will produce an oak of righteousness in ways that you will never know. How many of your lives have been shaped by people whose lives were cut short? How many, of, how many times have your life been shaped by people who thought their life didn't matter and all of a sudden it's made a lasting imprint upon you? This is how God works. And I just want to say as we finish, some of us were quitting too soon. Here's what I mean. If you don't believe he's always at work, then all of a sudden you're willing to give up 
very quickly. You're willing to give up on Jesus' love and kindness. You're willing to give up on that spouse because they're not changing. You're willing to give up on that church because they're imperfect. You're willing to give up on all kinds of things. And God taught me something over sabbatical. It was about a year ago. I remember sitting, opening and reading my Bible, and I came to a point, and you've probably all been there if you've ever tried to pick up your Bible. I was like, I'm done. I can't keep going. I'm just worn out. And God pressed in upon my heart in that moment something so sweet that I'll, I'll never forget. And it was, sit for five more minutes. Just sit for five more minutes. Push through the feeling of, I don't want to be here anymore, and sit for five more minutes. And God turned my life upside down. He met me in powerful ways because I sat for just a little bit longer. I had a friend of mine who went on a sabbatical, and I wrote up all kinds of things that I hoped would be a help. And he says, what would be one thing that you would tell me uh, just as we kind of finish here? And I said, buddy, your heart's going to not be used to sitting still. And when you're ready to give up, sit for five more minutes. And he said, okay, I'll try it. And he's like, I didn't realize how hard this would be. And he said, that changed my life. To sit for five more minutes. And some of you, you need five more minutes. You need to not give up upon the pressing of God into your life right now. And you need to give it five more minutes. And you need to ask him earnest questions and strive to see his face. And to ask him what he is telling you in this moment. Don't give up. Some of you need five more weeks. You need five more weeks. Because you're tempted to make a big decision in the middle of some major crisis because it feels like it is urgent and you've got to do it right now. But sometimes the best thing for you is to wait. Give it five more weeks. Some of you are ready to quit and to give up on a relationship. A relationship that is good and is pointing you to Jesus. It could even be a marriage and you're ready to throw in the towel. And I say give it five more months. If we believe that God and His kingdom is working in His people and He is not stopping in His work, He is always at work, then give it a little more time. And some of you are giving up on something and you might need to give it five more years. Because in this produce it now, give it to me quick, God says I delight in small beginnings over a long amount of time, but I promise great conclusions. Trust me. I am a sure hope, I am a sure father, and I love you with great surety, and you can take this to the bank. I am at work in your life. So remember this, he's worth it, he's willing, and he's always at work. Let's pray.